Welcome to this podcast by the Royal College of Anaesthetists. My name is Professor Eleanor Sullivan and I'm a consultant anaesthesiologist in Dublin and I'm a council member of the Royal College of Anaesthetists. I also chair the Global Partnership Committee at the Royal College. Today I'm honoured to be joined by the incredible Professor Kathleen Maitland and we'll be discussing her life in global health research. First though, I'll just summarise her CV. Professor Maitland qualified in medicine in St. Bart's in 1985 and in the next few years she decided to follow a career in tropical medicine. She is now Professor of Paediatric Tropical Infectious Diseases at the Faculty of Medicine and Director of the Eye Care Centre at the Institute for Global Health Innovation, Imperial College London and an Honorary Fellow at MRC Clinical Trials Unit, University College London. So welcome Professor Maitland, um, I'm delighted um, that you could join us today. What I'd like to first start by asking you is back when you were in London in the 1980s, what triggered this interest in, I think it was more called tropical medicine at the time, global health tropical medicine? Um, I, I first of all became a paediatrician and I really enjoyed the informality of the paediatric wards and the challenges you I mean there were truly it was general medicine there and um, and I just loved infectious diseases um, and uh, I had always wanted to use my medical training as a passport to be able to to, to travel and go overseas and I, and I actually had a sabbatical at the end of my house jobs in between uh, um, my, my finishing my house jobs and going on to SH show and I went to India for two months um, I had a sabbatical there and I, I was I was horrified I thought I've got absolutely no skills <laughs> nothing that I've learned um, in uh, in uh, just and I realized I seriously needed to get tooled up for the big challenge um, so I came back with a little bit with my tail between my legs although I really enjoyed being there I realized that the challenges were enormous and I I had lived a quite a sheltered life, <laughs> if, that, if that could be this yeah, because yes, as I say, it's, it, everything was very different. Um, so I, I was in the middle of my, we were able to move a bit faster through our medical training there and I, I got a, a job on the Liverpool um, Alderhey rotation um, as a uh, registrar fairly early on in my career and I was slightly petrified about that so I went to, to do an MRC part two course uh, and uh, that's where I met the man I married um, Tom Williams we were engaged within three months and and the thing that really brought us together was the fact that we both had a passion to want to work overseas well that's um, that's uh, interesting um, so you decided then I think to, to to put that into practice and to travel and um, you went i think you said i heard you initially did you go to africa initially or did you no 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 we went to the south pacific after many sort of putting your cvs into uh, uh on across people's desks and having responses uh, saying that there's absolutely nothing about your cv that recommends you to a career in research and we finally uh, were very very lucky um to uh, to see an advert in the lancet we'd actually planned to go traveling we saw an advert by professor sir david weatherall um, for a job in the southwest pacific in um, an archipelago of um, islands called vanuatu now at the time this was before internet 
So we couldn't look up where the, it was called the New Hebrides were. And also it was about alpha plus thalassemia. And he actually hadn't written the book about that. So I went to an interview totally unprepared. Um, I was like <laughs> I think a, a, a rabbit in headlights with my eyes just staring. But uh, we did get the job. We, we offered two for the price of one. And so off we went to our first research posting overseas. That was three years in Vanuatu. And I think the lesson there is, is you, you, you go, if you want something, you, you try and find until you, until you get there. Mm, so, yes. Um, yeah. So I was mainly um, thalassemia and anemia research there mm. and malaria as well. Yes, uh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. And then that set you up. Did you come back after that? And, and then why Africa then after that? So um, anything that really was happening in small little island groups in the South Pacific really wasn't, I mean, it, it was interesting work and people acknowledged it, but actually the real heartbeat of malaria research was Africa. At the time, there was between a, a, a million and two million children dying every year of the condition of severe malaria in Africa. It, it was There was epidemics of children and that's really where we needed to be if we, I wanted to progress my career. Up to that point, I'd largely been doing epidemiology, but when I came back, I obviously completed my paediatric training and, and really wanted to bring what I'd learned, um, certainly through this sort of triage and in, in, in emergency uh, management in the emergency room. Could I bring that to Africa to apply it to a condition that at the time was largely being categorized as anemia or uh, cerebral malaria, but absolutely no handle on how, how you're going, you know, what, what are the actual, you know, we needed to deconstruct the condition to actually say what are the things that we can immediately manage in the emergency room and and that was where that's that was the start of my career in uh, for the last 20 years in Africa that's right and I believe you went to, to Kenya um, where you still are most beautiful country and it, it was there I think that it was there then that you started the largest trial and critically in children ever undertaken a kind of in Africa the feast trial and um, now that was a big big undertaking a big RCT and looking, and we all know these fluid resuscitations trials are, are, are such a big undertaking. So you built up to that, I presume. Um, how did you get to that point where you were able to start this amazing RCT? I think the number of grants that got turned down was probably <laughs> not quite in the hundreds. <laughs> but, uh, I, I had many, many grants that were turned down, um, and, I, I, and we had. But all the while, I was trying to improve our understanding of the physiology of severe malaria and really what what it was looking like was sepsis. Uh, when a child came through the door, you didn't know whether they had bacterial sepsis or malaria. They, they presented in a fairly identical manner. And so one of the things uh, that we noticed that they were very acidotic, these children, they also had uh, many um, aspects of impaired um, circulation um, shock. Um, so we felt that this would, would be a good starting point in which to resuscitate children. We finally, after many, many attempts, um, the MRC funded the peace trial, which was an enormous undertaking. So we actually had to design every aspect of the trial. Um, and we, because it took so long to get the funding, we wanted to do a good trial. Um, many of the study centres that we were working with hadn't ever done research, let alone a large, large phase three trial. Um, so everybody got trained and everybody followed the same protocol and they did it in a, the most exceptional way. And so whatever was going to come out of FEAST was going to be credible. 
that that is incredible and having been to various hospitals you mentioned there um in my locally in my teaching kind of in africa roles at various points like i've been to malaga i've been to some of the hospitals that you mentioned and it's incredible to see what you've done how you managed to get a protocol get it adhered to and so forth so um, congratulations on getting that done and then of course it was published in the new england journal of medicine it was a fantastic um research project got the bmj research paper of the year but the results surprised us all i think how about you i know I know. So I had actually been invited to NUSA, that's the ANZICS group, the Australian and New Zealand Intensive Care, and they'd asked me to come and talk about my work. I think Simon Finfer had been tracking me. Um, and uh, he, uh, so I was, and I phoned up Simon Finfer and said, we've got a result. Um, and uh, and he said, brilliant, you could, you know, you can present it in front of us. And I was still shell-shocked from the results. I mean, it really, it, it, it took me by surprise. Um, I, in, I was literally in tears with the result. I did not expect this result. And so when I presented it to Noosa, I presented the results back to front. So I presented the results of albumin versus saline. Um, and I heard the audience go, ooh, <laughs> you come all the way around the world to show us that there's no difference between the two. We kind of, we know that already. And then I said, well, this is the real result. And I actually didn't say any words. And they just looked at the data on the slide and the audience went bonkers. Um, I basically had a standing ovation. Ronaldo Balemo collapsed. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, who was sitting was not, on the, who was, was sitting on the front row but Jeff Drayson of the uh, New England Journal and I said is this something you might want to publish and uh, he went straight back to his editors and they said we can't we can't miss the one this one out and so we got it fast tracked into the New England Journal and the rest is history yes um, amazing isn't it and um, and it I think at the time you um, were trying, obviously, to improve um, practice there and protocol-driven. Protocol so did, I think you, you struggled to get this into the WHO um, to, to accept, I think, almost, or, or to change the protocols that they were developing. Yes, which was a real shame um, yes. because uh, they, they then started to sort of say, well, you didn't treat children with proper shock. Uh, which is nonsense. I mean, paediatric shock is not defined by uh, low blood pressure. It's defined by a series of signs. And then they invoked the fact that uh, their proper shock, which they had never uh, ever evaluated, uh, was basically four signs of impaired circulation, uh, for which uh, there was 60 children in the FEAST trial that actually were eligible. This is 60 out of over 3,000. If they were given fluid boluses, they had an 80% mortality. Um, but if they weren't, they had they 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 had a something like a 20% mortality. But they said, well, that trial isn't large enough. Therefore, we we can't believe the results. Um, and we were very very concerned about this because most pediatricians here don't understand the differentiation between just a capillary refill and a capillary refill with three other signs. Um, so the slippage is the big issue, and really depressing the when I. I went to the first big sepsis meeting that was held on the coast here for Africa. I said, who's still giving fluid boluses? And everybody's arm shot up. And, you know, it's a passion for people want to do this because they think they're doing the right thing. And that's what we thought we were doing, the right thing, because children get better. But yes. you don't see them. Actually, they then go on to develop lethal 
shock, basically cardiovascular collapse, which we hadn't anticipated. We were looking for fluid overload, which there wasn't any. Um, we were only giving, largely giving doses of 20 mils per kilo, which some of the investigators thought were basically homeopathic, but that was enough to cause excess mortality. So that was the explanation that at 48, um, because he looked for 48 hours, at 48 yes. hours. And 28 days, yeah. Yeah, and at 28 days. So the explanation was um, this cardiovascular collapse causing excess mortality. So mm. th that must have been, you know, it's fascinating. Did you eventually manage to change the, change the protocol, the WHO protocol? Well, they, they have yeah. accepted it more, but uh, they, yeah. yes, their guideline group, you know, I think, I know I'm probably going outside my remit here, but you know I think you need to inspect the CVs of a guideline group and say, do you actually have the right qualifications for this, including involving a statistician with methodology um, who understands this, um, not a group of earnest people who yeah who don't really like the results and then try to fudge it. So you know there I think that that's a real shame, um, and they say we've got to design guidelines for the rest of the world, not just Africa. Very interesting they, point about guidelines. They need to make that very clear, because yes. so why should African children continue to die for them thinking that they're doing the right thing? Yeah, well, I get the impression you, you're um, always you're up for these challenges, and um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then I think taking on the next. I'm sure you've, you did. I know you did other studies, but I suppose the big next one because we haven't time, unfortunately, to go through them all. But the next one that I'd really like to hear about is is your your the, the coast trial which is the um, recently published um, I think and again it's looking at um, oxygen another obviously in these very sick patients and you know having been to Africa and knowing the lack of oxygen there um, I think this was a particularly challenging trial and again the innovative idea of bringing in the AIRVO which as all anesthetists listening will be very familiar with using and um, the advantage of that being room air and oxygen so some preservation of use of oxygen as well. So perhaps you just talk us through that um, briefly, Catherine. Thank well, you. it's good that you you had noticed the fact that the oxygen is a big issue. I think that you, um, I think uh, it's until India had flagged that recently. I think most people thought there was inexhaustible supplies of oxygen. Certainly in Africa, there isn't. The oxygen chain, i.e. buying tanks of oxygen, requires upfront money. Often there's technical challenges, the, the cylinders leak, and there's just, just not sufficient to go around. Uh, the WHO therefore said, well, why don't you use concentrators, oxygen concentrators, but they need electricity. And many hospitals, even a WHO survey of many hospitals across Africa, most reported we do not have reliable sources of power. So that is not a solution. Um, so, the, so that means that although on paper oxygen is recommended, a lot across a lot of conditions. The condition that we were focusing on was severe pneumonia. Um, actually, in practice, the, the standard of care is largely permissive hypoxemia because a children are identified by the wrong clinical signs. Clinical signs do not predict which children actually have hypoxemia measured by a pulse oximeter. Pulse oximeters are very, very rarely used, which is a real tragedy um, because then they could direct the the, the use of this resource. Um, and you know, as I say, the, so we needed to do that trial. Um, WHO had said the two particular questions for severe pneumonia is at what threshold should we be giving them oxygen? That was the question that we were asking in the feast trial, uh, then, sorry, in the coast trial, um, and how to give it. Um, and the how to give it was that obviously we were trying to look at whether giving a little bit of respiratory support in spontaneously breathing children would 
basically stop them from dying of respiratory exhaustion. There is no backup plan in the vast majority of hospitals. ICU is not a reality. Um, in fact, in Uganda, there is one paediatric bed in Malago um, Hospital, the, the National Hospital, um, and there is, so there isn't. Um, so we, ha we have to try and do what we can do to save lives on the, the paediatric ward. Um, I was very uh, uh, flattered that Fisher and Paykel were interested in the trial when we approached them. They donated all the systems. They were not involved in the design, the running or interpretation of the mm. results. But they were incredibly supportive. Um, and they, 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 the original design of their high flow uh, was for home use. Um, and that meant it was easy to teach and easy to implement. But the attractive aspect of it is could, it could entrain um, air as well as oxygen. And so we, as, although there wasn't a protocol for this, we created our own protocol where the vast majority of children started off with room air alone. And then we titrated in because we monitored the children very carefully. We titrated in oxygen as required. Um, so it was a very oxygen sparing protocol, even though it was uh, across all of the sites and everybody followed that same protocol for, for its delivery. And very practical, because, yeah, mm, and mm. that's the answer because for, for going forward, we still we still will have supply issues of oxygen. And then oximetry, um, just that's something I'm interested in because of the global oximetry project I was involved in, in and delivering oximetries to Malawi, in fact. But there is always a shortage. Did, I mean, you presumably had them for the study. Are they still used there, out of interest? Yes, because children? quite a lot of the study centres are actually continuing to do research. Great. But um, a cross-sectional yeah. survey that was done, uh, the repeated cross-sectional surveys by one of my colleagues across a Kenyan network of hospitals. Um, this was done over a decade, and despite WHO recommending oximetry yeah. for the last two decades, yeah. um, I think only 10% of hospitals had a pulse oximeter. Whether you've got a pulse oximeter and whether it works is a different thing. You can quite often go and find it. Oh, yeah, we've got a pulse oximeter. Well, why is it in the drawer? Oh, it's got yeah. no batteries. Yeah, we, we've had dealt with that. In fact, in theatres, it's improved now, but that's because of this Lifebox project. But um, you're, you're absolutely right. It, it's needed. But let's... let's so, so can I just let's say that... Um, can you go back to the post-trial? Yeah. Can, can I just say that the pulse, they, they, we used BitMOS, which has, has Massimo technology, oh, yes. so, to actually uh, make sure that we were actually accurately recording or that's not using... Yes, so uh, yeah. that was one of the things that we absolutely were clear that we, you know, you, you can only enter a trial using this this particular technology and not any other random pulse oximeter. So I just wanted to raise yes. that while we were talking about pulse oximeters. Yes, carry on. Just wondering then, um, again, I think there are a few issues with the trial. I mean, um, it seems a very pragmatic, pro good programme, but you, you were stopped along the way a few times. Is that not right? Yeah, well, five times. Five um, times. In Uganda, but not in Kenya. Um, we, uh, we had a complaint that we were absolutely, we flew out the blocks uh, within the first five months we'd enrolled nearly set, over 700 patients. Uh, this is in a, a, a five-site trial. You know, this was, we were absolutely purring along. We were going to get to our sample size very, very quickly. And then a complaint went in, um, in actually in Malago, that... Uh, do you realise that coast trial people have been trained to stand by with their arms folded, denying children oxygen, watching them die, which was a false complaint, um, but it was a complaint that got traction. Uh, we were audited by the ethics committees and other bodies, and every time the same complaint went in, 
Um, we actually had an external uh, data monitoring board review of the data, which said there was absolutely no safety concerns, that the trial should continue as designed. Um, but most of that was ignored. Uh, it was a, a single individual who had seemed to have got traction by this stage. He went to every single medical body and other bodies across Uganda, each time causing the trial to stop. Um, many awful, terrible accusations. This, this really put a lot of pressure on our uh, trial uh, study teams. Uh, their colleagues were saying, why are you involved in this ridiculous trial? You know, we've heard that this trial is, is you know, it, experimenting on African children. Um, and it, 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 you know, really for them, it was very difficult to continue to st stay, the, stay the course, even although at every time that we stopped, we were vindicated. Um, we had a fantastic trial steering committee uh, group who supported us all the way along, including writing letters uh, of support saying that they wouldn't have been a member if they hadn't supported the design. But with the fifth stoppage and no uh, hope of us ever getting to this end of the sample. They su suggested they could see that the strain we were under, that we'd got to nearly 2,000 children, that there was no point in us continuing, and they recommended the trial to stop. And that's what the power of the TSC is. Uh, we, we notified the funders, the sponsors, and they all supported that decision to stop the trial. Um, we were also being taken to court in Uganda a, to stop the trial, and uh, civil society were taking us to court on the same allegations, and B, to compensate all the children that we had killed in the trial to date, uh, as if children had never died from pneumonia before. Gosh, that was quite, quite a... It was awful. It was, yeah. yes, the nights of no sleeping. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Was, and at, at the point you stopped, how many, how many had, enter, had been in, entered into the trial? I've forgotten now. It's, it's <laughs> you had enough that you felt, though, that you had reasonable It's the largest paediatric multi-centre trial of, uh, of oxygen yeah. ever yeah. published. Um, yeah. So it, it's, it was a substantial Big number. Numbers. Big numbers. And you might just briefly discuss the results, but are you confident that you, yeah, you, you had enough, obviously, to have, to, 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 to see a trend there? Well, the... We didn't. Um, obviously, oh. the tri trial was stopped too early for us to, to be confident of any of the results. And we've made that very clear in the publication, which is open access. Um, um, in intensive care medicine, people are, um, can go and download it. And also the uh, the the, uh, the accompanying editorial by the TSC members. Mm. Um, so uh, we've, we actually saw that uh, high flow versus low flow. In other words, low flow is just how you would normally standardly give oxygen. That's why we, how we sort of compared those. Uh, it was either low flow is either using a mask or just nasal prongs. There was a 40% reduction in 48 hour mortality um, that uh, didn't obviously re reach significance, which is P0.8, mm. but tantalizing um, to su suggest that actually this is a some some sort of uh, 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 yeah, um, it was a result that actually needs to be followed up, um, yeah. possibly with another trial. I don't know whether I, I would be doing that trial, but I think other people should take that result because I think that's a very interesting um, yeah. observation. The second observation was the or the, the result was obviously the, the the group that didn't immediately receive oxygen. Um, this was the group who had saturations between 80 and 92 percent. Um, half of those children got randomised to permissive hypoxemia. 
they were allowed to actually receive oxygen if their saturations dropped below 80%. Only 15% of that group of children required oxygen, meaning 85% actually corrected their saturations without oxygen. Um, their mortality was 1.6%. This is a pre-trial mortality was 9 to 10%. So an enormous reduction in mortality, but we also saw that in the other arms. Um, so we felt in, in, in some ways vindicated that actually we weren't causing harm. Uh, and also that our data monitoring committee had been looking at the results. They had shown that there was no safety issues. The other uh, component that we looked at it and uh, we brought survivors back at day 28 and, and did very detailed neurological and developmental uh, assessments and we found no evidence that uh, there was any uh, any deficits there and so we've also felt confident that uh, that um, a conservative strategy or permissive hypoxemia was not harmful so they were very very interesting results and as you say would have been probably um, if you had completed the trial probably would just have a stronger signal in that direction so yes. um, do you feel now are the, are the, is that active group still there or could you sort of complete the trial or is there any need to do that now no we can't once you try once yeah. you stop the trial the trial yeah. will stop and we yeah, inform ethics etc um, yeah. and I think yeah. um, people need to go away digest the results and think about uh, you know the implications i think yeah. the uh, the fact that uh, you know the passion for you know i think the who had flagged that, that the fact that many children aren't receiving oxygen they blamed mortality on that well yes. we quite clearly in this trial had said that actually you know it's it's not just oxygen that's important we think that what we did in the trial was being very concerted we monitored children yeah. carefully and even in the other arms we actually uh, wound down oxygen weaned oxygen very very rapidly so overall we used very little oxygen across the whole yes. trial <laughs> yes, which which is great because, as you say, it, it is a major problem there, and I suspect even worse now with with the COVID all mm. um, the the shortages are even worse. Um, so, Catherine, we're coming towards the end, but I have a few other maybe topics just to quickly mention. But just to say, um, you, you you've achieved amazing. You're an exemplar of undertaking challenges that others would really find or consider too difficult and you've been innovative and your resilience is amazing but um you you are did you face any personal challenges anything with regard to maybe being a woman you know we've so few um women in academic in the academic world and um did you feel that what did you feel any prejudice to, towards you or did it help you know restrict you in any way in your endeavors um I think in the early days when I was doing my research with my husband, although we had absolutely no conflict between us, we were a good power team, um, uh, he was getting all the recognition for the work. And uh, even when I put in a fellowship to the Wellcome Trust, which I was successful with, uh, one of the reviewers had said, I don't believe that we should be giving wives fellowships. So another reviewer had said, uh, I don't believe that Dr. Maitland has written this fellowship. Um, there was uh, that was the bad old days, I suppose, of the 90s. Attitudes have definitely changed. Um, and I think uh, certainly in critical care, more and more women are taking more leadership roles. Um, uh, I've 
been very privileged to the fact the, the the type of research that I've done has necessitated me being in Africa. But I'm N equals one here, whether I'm male or female. There's nobody else doing these big trials in Africa, and it would be very nice to see somebody from the continent take up these challenges and start running with the big questions. But the big questions, you do, you have to think about, I mean, design is all important and thinking, yeah. you know, having a good idea um, and thinking whether, you know, you've got to think about the whole context. And when we thought about coast, we thought, well, yes, we could bring high flow to Africa, but then there's this sort of the challenge, you know, will it burn through all of the oxygen? So this is why we developed a protocol that actually was quite conservative and safe. Um, it, we would have had a safety signal if there, you know, there was an issue there. And yeah. so I, I think about the bigger picture um, and that's always, it keeps you grounded. Yeah, and also doing it in context because you've lived and worked there. I think that, mm -hmm. that makes it all so much more relevant. Um, and just um, any advice maybe to these young um, trainees we have um, that we know are interested in global health. We've done a survey recently and shocked how many wanted in the undergraduate curriculum and so forth, and even in the in and have opportunities to 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 travel and do some help. Any advice you would think? Um, I think um, coming from a clinical background and then doing research, it's, they're two dif separate disciplines. Uh, I, I don't really want to patronise people here, but sometimes, uh, you know, having to follow a protocol, uh, having to, to, to do things that sound boring and having to have the discipline of doing research, which, which the benefits often, you don't get that instant gratification. It's five years down the line sometimes between winning the grant and actually realising the result. Um, Sometimes those timelines aren't on for, for clinicians. They're they're hungry to have, you know, yes. feedback quite early on. And so, you know, it, I think there's, I, I think do come out and, and and work overseas. Be realistic. Don't bring your what you you do in in the UK to the to the to the beds in Africa because things are different. You might have one nurse for the entire ward, and if your patient isn't brilliantly being looked after, do think about her challenges as well. And so sometimes when we do have people who come and join us, we have to sit down and have a chat about reality first. Uh, but uh, yeah. I think it, yeah. it's great that uh, yeah people are yeah. interested in global health. Well, that, that is great advice. So I'm just going to, to finish by thanking you for your time. Absolutely wonderful to hear about what you've done. And despite all the difficulties you've developed into one of the world's foremost academics studying how to improve care and outcomes in low and middle income settings. So congratulations on all your work to date. And um, can I wish you every success in the future? Thank, Thank you. you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Royal College of Anaesthetists podcast. Make sure you don't miss out on the latest episodes by clicking subscribe on your favourite podcatcher. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you give us a review. It helps others find our podcast. And finally, if you would like to access more podcasts, as well as videos, e-learning, webinars, and our programme of events and courses, you can find them all online at rcoa.ac.uk forward slash education. We hope to see you again soon. Please note, all views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and not those of the Royal College of Anaesthetists. <laughs>